Bible Biogs in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, one character at a time. Author, pastor and Bible teacher Mike Beaumont is in conversation with David Taverner. In this episode, we're going to look at the life of Moses, which you can read about from Exodus chapter 2. And Mike, maybe just let's begin by explaining the the gap in time between a previous episode looking at the life of Joseph and living in Egypt and all the rest of it, but up to now, Moses, what's happened in between? Yeah, there's quite a gap as we turn the page from the last page of Genesis to the first page of Exodus, only takes us a moment to do, um, but a long time has gone. In fact, one of the things we're told in Genesis, in Exodus, sorry, chapter one, is that eventually a new king came to power who knew nothing about Joseph. The new king, we would probably say these days, a new dynasty is how we refer to it. So a whole new dynasty has come to power. Now, the honest truth is that the dates and timings of this early period are a little bit difficult to pinpoint. Uh, and scholars do have slightly differing views. But one of the conservative views is that Joseph died probably around 1805 BC. Moses was born around 1526 BC. But remember, it's 80 years before he really gets underway or 40 years uh, before he gets So hundreds underway. of years. Have so we're talking hundreds of years. We're talking a minimum of 250, but it could even be as far as 430 years between the two. This is a long period of silence, and it's almost as if things have just gone into pending for a little while. God hasn't forgotten his plan by any means, but yeah, turn from Genesis to Exodus. There is this centuries gap before the next key stage in the story. Um, and what's been happening in Egypt with Joseph and his descendants in, in Egypt? The Bible tells us that they've been multiplying. Why? Because that's what God promised. Previous episode, looking at Abraham, we saw the promise of God. You'll have descendants as many as the stars in the sky. And that's really begun to happen. So we saw in the previous episode that Joseph had been able to bring his family down from Canaan to avoid the famine. And there they begin to settle in the Nile Delta region, in the Goshen region, and they begin to multiply. Why? Because God's promised that. There's huge blessing. So the numbers multiplying, multiplying, multiplying. Now, put that into modern language. How do people start to feel when different ethnic groups who came into the country on one basis suddenly start growing and multiplying? When they start to feel squeezed out, well, we know the answer. We've seen that in the UK. We see it in many other countries in the West where reaction starts to come at these, quotes foreigners who are, quotes taking over. And that seems to be what happens in Exodus chapter 1. There's this feeling among the Egyptians that Israelites are taking over. They're multiplying. And so when are, they known, are they known as the Hebrews at this point? Yes, they're known as Hebrews. Scholars disagree on the reason for that and the background to that. There was uh, the word habiru uh, from the language of the time probably means nomadic, landless, wandering people. And that may be, I have to stress, maybe where the name came from. But that's certainly how Egypt saw them, which probably says something how they looked down on them. 
Because they were treated as slaves. Yeah, and these, well, they were made slaves. Originally, of course, they hadn't been. But in Exodus chapter 1, when this new king, this new dynasty comes to power, who knows nothing about how Joseph's helped out a previous generation, he starts to say, look, these folk are growing. You know, if we're not careful, they could turn against us. They could end up taking over our own country. And at that point, yes, you're right. They turn them into slaves. They say, this is the only way to control these guys. And that slavery gets pretty brutal as the Egyptians are wanting to build some some cities, particularly two called Python and Ramesses are mentioned in uh, Exodus chapter one. But the Bible tells us the more the Egyptians oppressed them, the more the Israelites grew and prospered. Why? Because God made a promise to Abraham. No matter what people bring against us, God's promises always have a way of triumphing. And they grow that much until we get this terribly sad story in chapter one, where Pharaoh says, okay, the only way we can deal with this is bring the midwives here. I'm going to command them that when a Hebrew baby boy is born from now on, they are to kill him. They are to throw him into the river Nile. The Nile, remember, was seen as a god in Egypt. So it's not just death, it's a sacrifice to their god. And it's only through the kindness of the midwives who end up telling Pharaoh We always get there too late. The Hebrew women are really strong. They've given birth by the time we've got there and they've whisked the boys away. So there's this genocide, attempted genocide, because the Hebrews are growing so strong and are appearing to be a threat to the point where they're made slaves of Egypt. So is this where we find Moses, the baby in the bulrushes? That's right. That well-known story for many people of the baby in the bulrushes. Uh, Moses's mum has him, gives birth to him, and aware of what's destined for the boys, she takes him, hides him in this little, this little basket. This actually, the Hebrew word there is the same word for the ark, for Noah's ark. She makes a little ark, but all it means is a floating basket. Interesting that both are baskets of salvation yeah. in the story, and it's where the phrase Moses' basket comes from. Yeah, absolutely, it? and okay. they still look how we imagine that shape must have done that would float easily. And she leaves him there and trusts him to God. She has no idea what will happen in this crocodile-infested Nile. So he's an orphan. He's an orphan, except one of Pharaoh's daughters hears this little baby crying, says she's gone down to bathe one day. Hope she didn't do it by the crocodile bit. And she says, I can hear a baby crying. What's that? And the maid goes, bring this baby back. She says, oh, look at this sweet little thing. Do you know what? I bet this is one of those Hebrew babies. I'm going to adopt him. I'm going to take him back home. And so Moses, who was born a Hebrew, is now taken into Pharaoh's palace under the nose of the very guy he'll overthrow. And he spends the next 40 years, that time scale's given us by the New Testament. He'll spend the next 40 years growing up as a prince of Egypt if I can nick the Disney movie title for a minute. So this orphan who was named Moses, but Moses, where did that name come from? Moses, the name means I drew him out in Hebrew because his mum, he was drawn out of those bulrushes. And so that became the name that he carried. So a sort of real... Rags to Rich's story by the sound of it then, if he was abandoned by his mother, whose name we possibly don't know, and rescued by Pharaoh's daughter who lived at a time when her father was wanting to 
kill all these baby boys. So <laughs> saved by her. Yes. And, and presumably then, she had a good relationship with her dad. Yes. You know, he knew she'd not been pregnant. Yes. So, Daddy, you know, I wanted a baby. Princess gets what princess wants. <laughs> and for 40 years now, he grows up as a prince. I find this fascinating because while we aren't told this in the Bible, what sort of things would Moses have learned in those 40 years? Leadership, writing, military skills, law, all the things that God would one day use in him. That's why we say to people, never despise what God has used in your past life. God can always take this and use it as part of what he has for you in the future. And he was given access to the best of the best. Best of the best. Best food, best beds, best everything. How, though, did he feel about his, his roots? And people, did people know that he was, you know, a, a Hebrew by birth? Well, as we read the story in chapter two, clearly they did. But we're not given all the details and how much Moses knew we don't 100% know. But clearly he felt some affinity because uh, chapter 2 tells us that some some years later when he'd grown up, that's all they tell us, but New Testament says he's about 40 now. It says he went out to visit his own people. So clearly he'd been told. Presumably the princess must have told him as he grew up, this was your background and your history. So perhaps just out of interest, fascination, he goes out to see these Hebrews that he's been hearing about. And he's horrified by how they're being treated. And in particular, he sees one being maltreated by a slave master and actually turns against the slave master, kills him, hides his body in the sand. There's always plenty of places to hide things out there in Egypt, aren't they? Mm. And when he then goes and tries to intervene in a dispute between two Hebrews, they turn around and say, who are you to interfere with us? You're going to kill us like you did that, that Egyptian? And suddenly he knows he's been spotted. And for some reason, he gets afraid and he flees. I have to confess, I've never quite understood that bit. You know, come on, you've grown up in Pharaoh's house. You killed a guy. You could make up a story, for goodness uh, He could have gone back into the security of the palace and I'm all sure that. I'm sure he could have done. But, mm. of course, God's at work here. God's now unlocking the next phase in the story. And so he flees from where he is to... Midian towards the desert towards the east and he will spend the next 40 years of his life another 40 years another 40 years 40 years learning how great he was and now God will spend the next 40 years knocking that out of him sort of in the wilderness almost. learning how insignificant he was he marries a wife while he's there looks after flocks interesting again you see God's going to use this 40 years in the wilderness He'd spend another 40 years in the wilderness later learning how to survive. What does a nomad, a, a shepherd, learn to do in the wilderness? He learns to look for water. He learns to look for provision. And all of this God will take and use for Moses' good and even more importantly for the good of his people in the years to come. So there is a destiny for his life. There's a plan for his life. There's there's something something's going to happen that's going to be very, very significant, but all that's gone before is not wasted. Absolutely not. And I think with God, it never is wasted. We have to put it into his hands. You know what? And some of the stuff from our past life isn't good. Killing someone isn't good. But when we put it into God's hand and make a new start with him, which is what Moses is about to do, God uses the stuff from the past 
for the plans he has for our life. So he's out there in the wilds of nowhere as a shepherd. Minding his own business. And what happens? He meets a bush. <laughs> Maybe you think that's not very dramatic, but this bush was certainly dramatic. He suddenly sees a bush catch fire. Now, do you know what? There was really nothing unusual in that. Bushes spontaneously catch fire. We often see in the news, don't we, items of forest fires in places like Greece or the west coast of America where suddenly uh, there's a raging fire before you know it because of the intense heat, you know. It could have been 40 degrees centigrade out there. And he sees this bush burning, catching fire. But what gets him is that it burns and burns and burns and burns and burns and it doesn't burn out. And so he makes a big mistake. He says, I will go over and see what's happening. His whole life will be turned around at this point because as he goes to this bush, through this fire, through this symbol of fire, he encounters the living God. And God suddenly makes his presence known in that burning bush and calls to him and says, Moses, he knows his name. That's interesting, isn't it? God knows our name. Hmm. Moses, Moses. And he said, yeah, here I am. And here's this bit that links the story to what we've seen in previous episodes. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he's linking the story in. What has gone before is not unimportant. And Moses just falls down on his face and, and God starts to speak to him and says, I've seen my people suffering. I've heard their cry. It's come up to me. And now it is time to act. Why then? Why not earlier? I don't know. As I said in a previous episode, sometimes if I could buy God anything, I'd buy him a watch <laughs> because his time scale and ours. So this is referring to all those Hebrews back in Egypt who are our slaves. Absolutely. And God's seen them. God's heard them. God's heard every cry and he says it's now time for me to act and Moses I've got a job for you I am going to send you back to Pharaoh whom you've just fled from and I'm going to get you to go and say let my people go that they may worship me and in Exodus 3 and 4 then there follows this sort of dialogue between Moses and God as he comes up with all his excuses which I'm sure many of us have done many times well bear in mind that 40 years have elapsed when he fleed from Egypt anyway. So the thought of going back would have filled most people with terror. Exactly. And who knows what would have happened over those years. So I think we can understand the fact that he doesn't want to go back. And so we get from chapter four onwards, this sort of endless discussion of, you know, but yeah, but what if they don't listen to me? Or, or what if this, or what if that, or please send someone else to do it. And God eventually gets mad with him and says, you'll jolly well do what I tell you to do. And off he sets, goes back to Egypt, taking his Midianite wife with him, Sipporah, who he's found while he's been there, and heads back to Egypt to do what God has told him to do. To present himself before the same Pharaoh that he'd Escape from. Absolutely. Run away from. My goodness. This is risky stuff, isn't it? Mm. Mm. This is really risky stuff. But do you know what? I think that encounter that Moses had at that burning bush was so overwhelming. That call was so great 
that that's what took him through. That's why it's so important for us, you know, if we're going to do something for God that we know God's spoken to us, may not be in a burning bush, maybe through a scripture verse that leapt out to us. It could be in a whole host of different ways, but knowing God called as God centers is going to be really crucial as he will discover, because of course, Pharaoh's not going to roll over and say, oh yeah, sure, of course they can go, take my workforce. But he was driven. He was driven by that experience. He was driven by this personal encounter with the living God. And from that point on, his life would never be the same again. And what was the reaction of Pharaoh? Pharaoh said, yeah, sure, take them. <laughs> no, he didn't, did he? He said, um, no. <laughs> <laughs> Basically. In fact, he says to him, who is the Lord that I should listen to him? Because mm. Moses has gone back and said exactly what he was told. The Lord says, and by the way, in that burning bush, God had done something very special with Moses. He'd revealed his personal name to him. So he wasn't just the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He was what we often see in our English translations as the Lord in capital letters. Mm. In Hebrew, Yahweh, which means I am. The I am has sent me to you. And he turns around and says, who's I am? We've got a load of gods here in Egypt. Who's I am that I should listen to you? And he refuses to let the people go. And so God sends Moses back each time saying, let my people go or judgment will come. And each time Pharaoh says no. And so what we get in the following chapters is God sending a series of plagues. Oh, the 10 plagues. The 10 plagues that come on Egypt. Here's the interesting thing about them. They were not 10 nasty things that God thought of. This was not God in heaven thinking, hmm, what can I send that will really turn the screws? Oh, I know, boils, that's always a good one. Every one of the single plagues was a challenge in some way to a Hebrew, to a, sorry, an Egyptian god. The fly was a symbol of an Egyptian god. The cow, the cattle that died, was the symbol of an Egyptian god. The river Nile was an Egyptian god. The sun that got blotted out, Ra, the Egyptian god. These were challenges. It's Pharaoh had said to Moses, who is the Lord? And it's as if God says, I'll show you who I am. I am greater than every one of your gods. And in those 10 plagues culminating in that tragic last one, the death of the firstborn. Because, of course, Egypt thought it had got death in its hands. They knew how to handle death, great preparation for death with their embalming and their tombs and mm. their sending people on to the afterlife. We can control death, and suddenly they find that they can't. Only God can. And eventually Pharaoh gets the message and says, get out and take your people with you. And that are, that's a lot of people that suddenly going to disappear from that economy and that That's a lot of people. Nation, yeah. Um, scholars, again, disagree on exactly how many because we're not given the exact number. It was at the very least several hundred thousand. Some scholars think with women and children as well as the men working backwards from the numbers that we are given of those who escaped and went through the wilderness it could even have been as high as two and a half million. Wow. So we're talking a significant population exodus. So that's where the book gets its name from. Absolutely. Exodus, escape, way out. 
whole book of Exodus is this exciting story of the escape from Egypt, that exciting story of the crossing of the Red Sea when they're trapped, but God opens up a way and Pharaoh's armies are swallowed up. They're traveling south to Mount Sinai where God meets with them once again. And in Exodus 19, there God makes a covenant with them. So far, they've been like his big family. But in Exodus 19, he promises that from henceforth, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now they're a nation as well as a family. They're both. They're a nation. And of course, a nation needs laws to live by. So from Exodus 20 onwards through Moses, he will give the law, the Ten Commandments. He'll give the instructions for the tabernacle and sacrifice. Because what happens if you break the law and God's command? You need a way of getting right with him again. And so we get all the sacrifices and the rituals for how Israel can maintain that relationship with the living God and stay as his people. I'll come back to those Ten Commandments in a second. But you said that they travelled south. If they're in Egypt and they're needing to go back to the promised land, which is solely north of there, why ever do they go south? Good question. In fact, going northeast would have been the fastest way to go. They could have gone along what was known as uh, the Way of the Sea, which was a major highway that ran from Egypt up the coast, cut across the valley in Israel, up over Galilee, and then went on to Damascus and over and then down into Mesopotamia. So this was the great highway. This was the natural way to go. And actually, if they'd gone that way, it would have taken them 10 days. The only thing is, Israel had lots of fortified cities and fortifications along the road. And so God takes them the other way, the long way. Oh, they followed God's lead. Yeah, so it was partly because the practicalities, that way would have had great resistance. But really, God was at work here. God will lead them south. And perhaps some listeners will remember how God does that with a, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, an early GPS system to get them through the desert. But I think what God is doing is, do you know what? We could rush to Canaan in 10 days. And they could. Okay, there were fortresses there. God could have dealt with those. He dealt with Jericho. He could have dealt with them. This is the thing again about God not always rushing. God has things to do on the way. And I think he takes them south so they can encounter him at Mount Sinai and receive his law and receive his covenant and receive the sacrifices and the tabernacle, the things that will be foundational to their life. Now, sadly, this journey will take a lot longer than God ever wanted it to. They could have done this much quicker, maybe certainly within a couple of years at most. It will end up taking them, as you know, 40 years because of their disobedience. So God leads them said deliberately. And do you know what? Even today, God sometimes takes us on journeys that mean there's a lot more time involved than we would have liked. I'm absolutely convinced listening to this right now, there will be people who are thinking, God, why don't you hurry up? Why didn't you do this quicker? And the answer is just let God take his time. He has things to do on the way as well as at the end of the journey. Now, throughout this time, Moses is leading these people. He's leading them across the Red Sea, leading them to Mount Sinai, even though that's south, etc. And you said about the Ten Commandments and the law and, and so on. So we will have heard of the Ten Commandments, but what about the law? Yeah, the Ten Commandments are, in a sense, part of the law, normally written with a capital L to show that you mean not just 
like the law that, that we have. So when God takes them to Mount Sinai, which is down in the southern tip of the Sinai Peninsula, and remember I said in chapter 19, he makes them his covenant nation. He makes this pledge with them. Now, in the ancient world, when you made a covenant with someone, you made a contract with them. And the contract was, I will do this, you will do that. And that's really what the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law are all about. It's about God saying, you are now my covenant people. Now live like this. Please note the way round that comes. You are now my people. Now live like this. Not live like this and you can be my people. Sadly, that's still what a lot of people today think they have to do to get right with God. Sadly, it's what a lot of Christians think Old Testament religion was about. Oh, they had to keep all these laws to be put right with God. No, from the beginning, God says, you are my people, now live like this. In fact, here's an interesting thing. In Jewish thinking, still to this day, their first commandment is not, you shall have no other God before me and make no graven image. Their first commandment is the very opening words of chapter 20. Then God gave the people all these instructions. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from Egypt, the place of your slavery. Now, to us, that doesn't sound like a, a command. But in Jewish thinking, it is. And it's like God saying, grace comes before law. My rescue and what I do comes first. Then, hey, guys, here's how I want you to live. And the Ten Commandments are really a, a summary of it relating to how we relate to God and how we relate to others. And then those Ten Commandments are unpacked in what often scholars call the Book of the Covenant. And in the following chapters, chapter 20 onwards, we, we get, in effect, those commands unpacked for life uh, as God's people. In the desert, it will get a second reading later on towards the end of the Promised Land when God gives Moses Deuteronomy in which the same laws will start to be applied, ready for life in the promised land. Very different. They'll be settled then, not nomads. So I would say to people, never forget that before law comes grace. Before God's saying, live like this, he says, look at what I've done for you. Mm. Now, don't have any other gods before me. Don't go sleeping around with other women. You're my people. Live like this. And for them... That distinguishes them from the peoples around them and the nations around them as well. Yes, absolutely. Um, one of the things that will distinguish the Hebrews, of course, is circumcision. They will actually forget to do that during the 40 years. Maybe it was just the hardship of desert life that meant that didn't happen. But one of the first things Joshua, who follows Moses, will have to do in the promised land. So the sign of circumcision and living in faithful obedience to law out of grateful response to God. And also living, an important thing he also gives in the book of Exodus, but also Leviticus in particular, all these sacrifices that at times to us think, oh my goodness, this is hard work. So detailed. Did this sacrifice like this, 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 but that sacrifice like that. Why? Because God wanted you to know you can't trample into his presence. You can only come on his basis, the way he says. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. They need to know that. Now, it wouldn't be those animals. It would actually be Jesus, who was yet to come, who they did not know. Hebrews says all this was like a shadow of that that would come one day. So they made his people 
So they need his law to reflect that in the world. And then each sacrifice, and therefore a tabernacle, a tent in which that would happen, a mobile sanctuary, so that they could know that their sins were forgiven and the block between them and God was cleared and they were free to live as his people when they'd done wrong. So this was a sense of God's presence, was it as well? You talked earlier about the cloud and the smoke and the fire and all the rest of yes. it sort of indicating yes. the direction of travel, yes. if you like, sense of God's presence. The tabernacle, that was... Interesting, because when the tabernacle is built, big word, isn't it? But all it means is a tent. It was a special tent. God gave detailed instructions for how it was to be made. Beautiful tent, embroidered, real craftsmen we read about in Exodus Bezalel and a holy ab and a whole team who so any people out there who are great with skills and crafts hey you know that's a gift of God they make this beautiful place interestingly when it's all packed up ready for travel it's all covered up under animal skins and it doesn't look like anything of God at all a bit like the incarnation isn't it you know Jesus had no form or beauty that we should behold him but there underneath truly was God so there's this tent this tabernacle at which God focuses his presence. Now, he's not, he's not in there because the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, as the psalmist will later say. But when this tabernacle is made, God comes down in this cloud and fills it like he will do at the temple as a way of saying, this is where I will be known. And he tells them in particular to make a thing called the Ark of the Covenant. Some modern translations have the Ark of the Covenant law. This gold-covered box with angels' wings stretching over it and two poles sticking out so that priests could carry it. And this, where the angels were, would be seen as the very throne of God on earth, the place where heaven touched earth, the place of God's choosing as he led his people into the next phase of their story. So as we conclude this portrait of Moses and all these different experiences he had and who he was, what is your takeaway of of his life. I think my takeaway from Moses is always this thing about the timing. 40 years learning how great he was in Egypt. 40 years learning how insignificant he was looking after sheep in Midian. Followed by 40 years learning how great God was. And I think when we come to a place where we think less of ourselves and more of him, yet without rubbishing all he's done for us in our path, then we're coming to a place where God can really use us in our life and in our ministry for Him. David Tavner was in conversation with Mike Beaumont, who's written about the people of the Bible throughout the Christian Basics Bible. Catch their conversations anytime on the UCB player or with your favourite podcast provider. Just search for Bible Biogs in 30 minutes.